I'll tell you something that may or may not surprise you, which is it's no different if you're a leading global <laughs> Fortune 500 company today. You're facing the exact same problem and you have a very similar solution as you and your media company. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I think you're really going to enjoy my interview today with Jennifer Smith, the CEO and co-founder of Scribe. Scribe is a software startup focused on assisting companies of all shapes and sizes better document their processes. This is not a sexy domain in which to build a business, but it is a highly impactful one. And in this conversation, we not only talk about how the product works, why they focus on reducing friction, but also Jennifer's history as a consultant, seeing the manual arduous process in which this has been handled in the past and why it needed a modern solution. I thought that she was wonderfully articulate and it is a company that is growing fast that you're gonna wanna pay attention to, particularly if you've got a business that needs to better document your processes. Here is Jennifer Smith. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Jennifer, welcome to Going Deep. I'm excited to be talking with you. Excited to be here, Aaron. So I was reading the announcement from your most recent $30 million Series A led by Tiger Global, and the quote from one of your Harvard Business School uh, professors jumped out to me. So I want to start there. And we can kind of jump off into how this led into uh, becoming a business that you are, are now the head of. Um, find the thing that you always have to apologize for about yourself and turn that into your career. So tell me how you've done that. Yeah, I love this quote. So I heard I, I was in business school about a decade ago, and I have to say at the time, it kind of went in one ear and out the other. And I sort of said, well, that sounds like something that sounds good on paper, but what does that even really mean? And I, I must have just kind of filed it away in my brain and kind of went on with my life, went back to my consulting job for a while, was in VC, sort of doing the kind of typical corporate thing. And when I kind of popped my head up, I took some time off and really reflected on what do I want to be doing with my life? It somehow kind of floated back to the front of my brain. And for me, it's always been about efficiency. If you were to ask my husband what his biggest pet peeve about me would be, he would say, he might have a list of many things, but at the top of the list would be Jennifer's always trying to do more in less time. She's always obsessed with how to do things as efficiently as possible. And I try to do it for the people in my life as well. So I'm the person who, if I've got to run five errands, I'm like mapping out my route to try to figure out the shortest between them. Can I do two things at once? Can I offload something to someone else? I'm always just trying to figure out like, how do we maximize the amount of output for a collective number of humans, whomever's in my sort of tribe in the least amount of time. And you know, I got to thinking, well, hey, what, what does that mean? Like, how should I actually be spending my professional time? If that's how I spend my personal time and what I think about, what could that look like professionally? And I kept coming back to this problem that had sort of been nagging at me, something that I had seen over and over again when I was in consulting. And then I had spent a bunch of time talking to customers and users, trying to understand how they spent their time. And um, that's ultimately what led to Scribe. It was really like this obsession with this feeling that, millions of knowledge workers around the world were wasting massive amounts of their days trying to explain to each other how to do things over and over again and like this reinventing the wheel. And I just always felt like, gosh, what a massive drag on overall global productivity and efficiency 
let alone individual happiness, right? Like what if we could actually do something about that? And I transitioned from, yeah, that's a really big problem. Someone will solve that someday, surely, right? To wait, this is a really big problem. How has this still not been solved so many years later to wait, this is a really big problem. And you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and give a shot at trying to solve it. Epic. So that's now taken the form of your company, Scribe. And like you said, background, uh, both in VC and consulting, and part of that consulting was this process documentation. Now, I have never uh, worked in any sort of really large uh, corporation other than like the briefest of stints post-college, but coming from like the SMB, digitally native businesses, people always talk about standard operating procedures as being a prerequisite for scaling your company. It's a way to take um, knowledge, and I always get the words implicit, tacit, what the type of knowledge that you're doing, Mm -hmm. but transferring it from inside people's brains and, you know, one person's little hacks that make things, you know, 10, 20, 30% better and putting that in some sort of institutionalized form that the next person being onboarded, the next person being trained for that role can then on-ramp really quickly. But really like candidly, the way that we do that today as a company that just went from three to six people over the last year is we have Google Docs that are well-organized, well-written and have been revised a couple of times but it is not like a particularly um, attractive or uh, easy to consume form of media. And we're a company that produces media that we should be relatively good at it. So you're, you're kind of evolving on that notion, but can you kind of talk about where it needs to get to in order for us to not waste so much time? I'll tell you something that may or may not surprise you, which is it's no different if you're a leading global (laughs) Fortune 500 company today. You're facing the exact same problem and you have a very similar solution as you and your media company. I'll tell you a story. When I was at McKinsey now 15 years ago, um, and I did a lot of organization and ops work for big, a lot of big financial services companies, like think of your bank, and I I probably worked with them. And so that meant tactically going into op centers and looking over the shoulder of agents for eight hours a day. And I'll tell you what, what I learned is the name of the game as a consultant is you figure out who the best person in that op center is and you sit next to them and you say, Stacy, what are you doing differently? And Stacy would, I'm now going to date myself, pull out a giant binder of SOPs. They weren't even digital back then. <laughs> Big oh binder. And she'd cut funk and she'd put it down on the desk and she'd show me and she'd say, this is what I was trained to do. It took me three weeks to train for this call center job. And I had to memorize everything that's in this book. But you know, in my time here, I found 30 shortcuts and here's what I do instead. And Stacy would show me all her shortcuts and my team would write that down in PowerPoint and we would sell that back to our clients for, you can guess, very large sums of money. And I always thought, gosh, if Stacy had just had a way to share what she knew how to do, she could have had really big impact in that op center. You know, she didn't need me and my team running around and, and regurgitating it for her. And now fast forward, you know, 10, 15 years, and I'm on Santel working in venture capital. And I got really curious. I spent a lot of time talking to buyers of enterprise software. So CIOs, CTOs, CDOs, folks at large enterprises, just asking them, like, what problems are you trying to solve? Like, what are your biggest challenges? What software do you wish existed? What do you have budget for? Just trying to kind of walk a mile in their shoes. And I was shocked to learn that 15 years later, nothing had changed. (laughs) This was still a massive problem, which is, If you are a company really of any size, whether you're scaling quickly or you're a mature company, just trying to operate more efficiently at scale, 
you have all of this knowledge every day that's mostly still just living in people's heads about what are they doing when they show up to work and they're nine to five fingers on keyboard trying to create value for your company. And to your point, if you want to get at it, that your only real option is to tell someone, hey, take time away from your job and here's a Google Doc or a wiki or whatever. Please write down what you know how to do. Or maybe you have budget and you hire a, a fancy consultant, you know, some version of a 27-year-old Jennifer running around with Lenovo ThinkPad, right? Trying to document it for you. But it's still incredibly manual. And, and there's a bunch of drawbacks to doing it just at a single point in time. And so with Scribe, we said, well, what if we could watch an expert do work and automatically capture what they know how to do? What if it was just like digital exhaust, a byproduct of you doing your job? And so I always love to think of the mental image of almost like opening up someone's brain and just sort of having the info that they've got around how to do their job piling out without them having to actually do any additional work or take time away from their jobs. And the other part of that, that that's really interesting to me is watching someone work is really how most people learn most things. Like I'm nowhere near the, the cook that my mom is, but I learned how to cook by watching her cook. And she's talking to me and talking through what she's doing. But, you know, that's that's a kind of core human experience. And it translates into sports. I watched the best player on my ultimate Frisbee team, how they orchestrated an offense, how they got open. And then I tried to emulate that in some way, shape or form, which is very different than reading. And we talk about that all the time. You can learn by doing or you can learn by reading something. And there's just a, a more natural pathway for someone to actually uh, take in that information. Yeah, well, that's, that's where you're triggering the mirror neurons, right? And I think most people learn by apprenticeship, at least if you sort of think about more of a corporate job when you show up, you might have sort of the training that they have to do for the first few weeks and maybe you retain a lot, maybe you don't, right? But what sort of the logistics of what do you need to know, need to know every day, you learn by popping your head over the proverbial cubicle and saying like, hey, can you just show me how did you do that thing again? Or how do I do this? Can you walk me through it? I think that's becoming increasingly harder when we're now in a remote world because you don't have that proverbial cubicle to pop your, your head over. Uh, and so now you've got people who are just zooming and slacking each other all day long. Like, hey, wait, can you show how do I do this thing again? Or even worse, they're just trying to figure it out on their own. They're just sitting at their computer, like trying to click around and sort of figure something out. And again, come back to the thing that you always apologize for. Like that is so deeply upsetting to me <laughs> that people are just wasting all of that time trying to get answers on how to do things, like not to mention what a disempowering feeling that is, you know, when you go to sit down to do something and you don't have everything that you need to do it, like that just doesn't, that just doesn't feel good, right? That doesn't feel like we're tapping into the best that humanity has to offer. Absolutely. So let's talk about how a company like this grows. We'll get into the funding in a, in a little bit, but I was looking at the sales page. You have a freemium model where someone can, you know, try it out, you know, uh, engage with it, you know, make scribe their first. Is that that way you call it? Do you call it the scribe the, the actual it. lesson? It's a noun. It's a verb. Someone just used it as an adverb the other day, which I thought was very clever. Yeah. So you can, you can do your first one, kind of see how it would work and how you'd potentially share it open up more functionality with a uh, paid usage, which is, you know, you referenced Slack before in Zoom. Those are two quintessential examples of that in the enterprise software space. And then you have the kind of standard pricing page that goes off into, you know, bigger ticket sales. What are you seeing so far in terms of, you know, Slack was really one of those um, Vanguard bottom-up sales motion type of firms that, you know, a small little segment of a team in a large organization started using it for their comms and then they start sharing it and it kind of land and expands in a really exciting way versus your enterprise sales buyer, which is, you know, a bigger ticket, 
enterprise sales go to uh, market motion, but definitely not moving as quickly um, in the early stages? Yeah, it's a, this is a great question. I think about this this literally every day of sort of this dual go-to-market of both what's called a traditional bottoms-up product-led growth, which is still relatively new, but well-known at this point from folks like Slack and Zoom and others who have done it really well, versus a very more traditional enterprise sales motion. I'll come back to your first question, which was like, how does a company like this grow? And the answer is very slowly and then very quickly which is we spent a lot of time um, running very lean as a company where we said, we're just going to have this free version of the product, nothing else. You can't even swipe a credit card and pay us. We don't want your money. The way that you can pay us is by using our product and telling us what you think. And so we put a free version of the product out in the world and saw what people did with it. And we said, hey, if you like it, share it with your friends. And so Scribe organically grew to be in tens of thousands of organizations in over 100 countries. We did not a, do- a drop of marketing or growth or anything. That was literally just word of mouth from our wow. users telling each other. Um, and along the way, we learned something way more valuable than any dollars we could have collected from them, right? We learned how is this valuable to people? How are they actually using it? What are the features that they're enjoying? Where are they trying to like work around in the product? Because we didn't design it specifically to their needs. And that really helped our product team iterate and grow really fast, right? And once we hit the point where we said, hey, we actually feel like we've hit product market fit. We understand who we're solving this problem for and how we're solving it and how the product does all of that, what these growth loops are. We said, okay, now we're going to raise money and really grow the company very fast. And so then we scaled out our marketing team, our sales team. We added the, you know, the ability to swipe a credit card and pay us from, if you're a bottoms up user, and we also layered on enterprise sales. And these things all work really nicely together, right? Even sort of in the, I come from more of a traditional enterprise sales world and there, the way that your company grows is very linearly, which is for each salesperson that you add, you expect to get X dollars in revenue coming out the other side, right? It's a linear growth model. What you get in layering these things together is an exponential growth model because each user begets an additional user. For us with Scribe, you have many different ways to share and invite teammates to collaborate with you in Scribe. I could send you a Scribe on how to do something. And at the bottom of it, it says, Jennifer created the Scribe in 54 seconds. Like, find out how if you're curious, right? People will click that, come through and create their own Scribes. And so where you have users, but getting more users, regardless of what you and your sales team are doing, you now end up with something that looks like an exponential curve. And so our challenge as a company is to think about what our pricing and packaging and our go-to-market model looks like so that we can meet buyers where they're at. If you're a you know five-person accounting firm, you probably either want to use our free product, which is great, have fun, or you want to you know swipe a credit card and, and upgrade to some pro features. And that's great. If you are a Fortune 1000 company, you probably want to have a conversation with our sales team. You probably want to kind of have a conversation with our security team, right? And so We need to think about how we orient ourselves so we can meet our customers or our users where they're at. And and so can you talk about the branding challenge of that? Because like in one sense, you're articulating, like if you're the person crafting that initial trailhead and you kind of want the the trailhead to really uh, divert significantly between those two archetypes, they're still kind of like landing on your website and needing to see an experience that's accessible to them. Like what, what are the, the, you know, the positioning or kind of like at a copywriting level, almost thoughts on how to make yourself seem accessible to the small firm and not 
for small companies to these big enterprise firms that you want to sell? Yeah, it's a very different paradigm, right? And so we have to be really thoughtful and intentional about it. And the distinction that I'll draw is actually the person that you're talking to. So if you think about traditional enterprise software, you're talking to the buyer who is not the same as the user, right? So if you mm -hmm. think about the way that these deployments happen, especially in, in kind of like larger companies, is there's a manager or a senior person who says, hey, this is the tool that we need. I'm going to purchase it. And then they push it down on everyone else. And so all of the marketing around that company, sometimes even the product of that company is geared towards influencing that decision maker at that buyer. We flipped it on its head and we said, we care about the user. We care about the knowledge worker, the person who has to share with someone how to do something. And we're building our software for them. And so this is why we really focused again on iterating and learning for how those frontline users use our product. Because we said our North Star is we want a user to use this not because our boss is telling them to, but because they want to, because it makes their day a little bit easier and a little bit better. And they feel like they're getting recognized for being able to share what they know how to do. And so all of our marketing and our messaging and everything is really oriented towards that frontline user and really figuring out like, how do we just help them do their jobs better? And our kind of overall positioning and messaging is you've already done the hard part of knowing how to do something that's valuable and interesting. You figured out like, how do I connect my Shopify account to my sales? How, do, how have I connected my marketing to my sales? How do I explain to my clients how to file their report? right? We're just here to make it really easy for you to be able to share that knowledge that you've already figured out how to do. And so we speak very much to that user and where that helps us even in larger accounts is we've got pull through from the users where now the users are going to their boss and saying, Hey, you need to get this for me. Not their boss saying, Hey, you've got to use this in your day. Got it. So you talked about hitting I, I would uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Ten thousand companies uh, that you tens of thousands of works. Yeah. Tens of thousands. Cool. Sorry, I didn't want to undersell it. Um, <laughs> so uh, there, you recently raised a thirty million dollar Series A from Tiger Global. So you also have a past life as a VC. So you'll understand the inside baseball of this. But to quickly kind of summarize for listeners, Tiger has really been at the vanguard of this model of a really expedited process of underwriting these very sizable venture investments into companies as a way to basically index a wide swath of private venture-backed firms, knowing with the thesis that, you know, across the spectrum of all these companies, there's going to be a lot of winners that we're going to get um, upside access to, which has kind of put the, the industry of venture capital into flux, which is used to maybe slower, more drawn out processes of figuring out what the kind of um, funding will be for some of these companies. That's been, that's been the story externally. That's been you know re repeated consistently in a bunch of different forms and evidenced by the fact that Tiger's raised an enormous amount of money very quickly for these uh, type of investments. As a founder on the like on the the counter the to the foil of that, but also having this background in venture and kind of knowing the lay of the land, can you talk specifically about the value of that? And I think I kind of already know, given your penchant for efficiency, um, can you just talk about why that model of getting funding for your startup was so compelling outside of valuation and other conventional things that people consider when raising money? Yeah, I'm pretty contrarian. I get asked by, you know, friends and founders quite a bit. Oh, you know, should I fundraise? How do I, how do I raise this round? What should I be doing? And my advice to 
most entrepreneurs is don't raise VC money. If you, there is a very small subset of businesses that are truly VC backed to fit the, the sort of archetype of what you're going for. And if you think about what a VC firm is even trying to do, think about their portfolio construction. You know, they'll place, call it like 30 bets within a given fund of, you know, we're going to invest in these 30 companies. And what they're playing for is the one or two that are going to become like Airbnb or Dropbox or Twitter, kind of pick your favorite company that are going to be 100x or more. And 90% of their returns are going to be driven by those one or two companies. And so what VC firms are looking for is companies that have that huge potential TAM that are going after big, bold, ambitious ideas that might have a a high likelihood of failing, but if they succeed, they're gonna do really, really well, right? And so as an individual founder, you need to think about, is that the kind of business that I'm building? And most businesses in the world are not that model. They're not VC-backed businesses. You can have a great business, but it just doesn't fit that risk-reward trade-off, right? And so the thing I always tell folks to start off with is, be really honest with yourself. Like, do you need VC funding? Because it is quite dilutive. It's quite expensive. It's gotten less expensive over the years, but but it still is, you know, and every bit you give up as a founder, right? It should feel pretty expensive to you. And for most people, I'd argue it's not the right answer. For us, it was the right answer. We were really thoughtful about when we took the money and how much we took. When we first started, the company took less than a million and a half. We were four times oversubscribed for that round. And I said, I'm going to take the smallest amount I can possibly take to build a very early team of a few engineers and do a very early MVP of a product and get it out there in the world and just see what happens and see what people, you know, how people react to it and what we can learn from And we ran painfully lean for a long period of time where it just felt like, you know, users were asking us for things. Customers were asking to give us money and we were just dropping stuff on the floor. We were like, we we can't, we don't have the ability to do this. We're just a small engineering team. And that was very purposeful because we said, you want to run really, really lean until you feel very confident that you have figured out product market fit. And it want, you want to feel almost like the market's ripping it out of you, right? Like it's really uncomfortable. Like people are pulling more than you can possibly give them. And that's the moment at which you want to switch pretty dramatically if you're at least in in more of this like VC backed environment and say, okay, now the game is about how do I get as many resources possible and really start to put my foot on the accelerator and hit go. And that's also when you have the maximum leverage to take on more funding without it being maximally dilutive. So when you can come in and say, we have tens of thousands of people using the product already, your capacity to negotiate uh, more money at a better price is going to be at its height. That's right. And it's the right answer for both the company and the investor. And I'll tell you why. It's because now you know a bunch of things. The ideal time to take money as a company and the ideal time for an investor to give you money is when you know what to do with that money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what an investor wants and what you should want as a company is, okay, I'm getting these incremental dollars and I know how I'm going to spend them. I know that if I invest in just building this part of the product more, or building out these channels or um, going after these growth tactics that I'm going to get this coming out the other side. And so I just need this money to get me to go here. And so you need to get to the point where you have enough insights and iterations on your business to be able to do that. Otherwise, you know, sometimes I fear when I see companies <clears throat> raising a lot of money, especially these days, kind of at, at earlier stages is like, do you, do you know what you're going to do with that? Or are you just going to throw some spaghetti at the wall and sort of like hope that something great comes out the other side? 
Now that has worked for a number of companies. So I'm not, I'm not necessarily spaghetti against the wall is, is a bad, doesn't work out, but it's not a strategy. Right. <laughs> right. And so you ideally want to have a strategy. hundred <laughs> percent. So, um, you shared a, a photo on LinkedIn that was pretty powerful because uh, my wife and I just uh, had our first kid. She just turned six months old, Congratulations. and so it was particularly You're a few ahead of us. Yeah, particularly salient because not that it's exclusively to be viewed through this lens for obvious reasons, but I can tell you that my productivity and my efficacy took a major, major hit uh, leading into the the birth of my daughter and in those initial months when sleeping through the night is uh, not a reality. And so I thought it was really powerful that you kind of simultaneously announced this round and the fact that you had done it or finalized it at the point of being eight months pregnant. And, you know, given your background in VC, you knew how exceptionally rare something like this was to have occurred. So I, this is kind of an, an open-ended question more so than, than some of the others, but what have you learned about going through such a kind of major event in your personal life and a major event in your business life? And balance is, can't possibly be the right word, but something akin to not collapsing, I guess, as you manage these two major, major um, events at a similar time. Yeah. I mean, what have I, what have I learned when it rains, it pours, (laughs) (laughs) Um, life happens in fits and spurts a lot of times too. Right. And it's, it's been a lot of activity. I think the the benefit for me is I had a, you know, nine months heads up that my son was coming and this was our first child. And so we knew it would be a major upheaval. We had no idea in the ways in which it would be an upheaval. And I have to say, having had a child, it was an even bigger upheaval than I had ever imagined. I have called all of my friends who have had children in the last few years, apologizing that I wasn't a better friend at the time because I had no idea what they were going through. And I do now, or at least I know what my experience was and it, it was a pretty major transition. And so I spent the nine months before my son came really trying to prepare to say, Hey, I don't know if I'm going to be able to go back to work after two weeks or two months or six months. I don't know what my experience is going to be like at the other side. And so let me start preparing my business so that if it does end up being much longer, that everyone has what they need in my absence, if I'm not able to be there. And so I focused on really building out our leadership team, um, folks who could operate, you know, without me and setting really clear culture and vision and mission for the company before, uh, before my son came. And, you know, and it, it's been incredibly hard just to be candid in, in kind of managing it all. And I, I'm not even going to claim that I'm managing it all, but you know, I'm, I'm alive and my son's alive and my company's alive. And that many days just feels like a success. Yeah. Um, and I, I think my team doesn't hate me. <laughs> so it's, it's all good. Um, but, uh, you know, I think in some ways it has helped the company because it meant that I needed to pull myself out of, uh, of a lot of the day to day and really empower people to be able to step up and do things and make decisions without me. And it's been also at a period of incredible growth for the company. So the company has more than doubled in a couple months since my son was born. And so, and, and I had to take some time away cause I had a, a just a lot of health complications coming out of the delivery. And so it's been kind of interesting for me to almost come back to what feels like a different company um, in the time that I was gone, but at the same time, feeling kind of proud, you know, that folks were able to really kind of carry it on without me. Well, Jennifer, I I think that, you know, to be building a company that is solving the problem of process documentation to make 
the team, you know, more well-functioning with one another, not that the vision and some of these other points are important, but the fact that you're building that company would, I don't know what like the Venn diagram is of, of companies that would be predisposed to be able to handle something like that. But it seems like yours would be pretty high on the top of the list to, to be able to manage such a transition. We have all of our know-how documented. <laughs> that's for sure. It's helped us a lot as we've scaled quite a bit. Yeah. Got to eat your own dog food there. Um, awesome. So we call it drinking your own champagne. <laughs> I like that one. That, that one's a little, little uh, better positioning. I like that. Um, so you basically answered all the questions that I had. Um, I, I think this is, it, it's something that makes a ton of sense to me as a product, just given the fact that I, I know the fellow small business owners that I'm friends with who either say, man, I wish I started doing my SOPs sooner, or how do you have time to even have a couple SOPs? Because like, we're, you know, trying to keep eight different plates spinning just to kind of keep uh, marching forward. So anything that could potentially make that easier and is less janky than me using like the QuickTime screen recorder obviously has upside for what we're trying to do. Um, but before we kind of aim towards wrapping up and asking the last two questions, is there anything else that you were hoping to share today about the company, about kind of your arc here that I didn't give you a chance to? Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll just talk a little bit about how the product works, if you think that that would be interesting and helpful, especially since you just mentioned kind of being a small business owner. I, I would say we, we see folks across the gamut, everything from kind of solopreneurs all the way to folks within large enterprises. We very commonly see kind of small teams and small businesses. And I think it's because they feel this real pinch where you've got teammates and clients and people you have to communicate to every day on how to do something but you are so limited on time because time is so precious and you're trying to do so much. And so we see that as a, I'd say almost a disproportionate segment for us. And it's because with scribe folks are able to just, they hit the record button and they do what they normally would do. And when they're done, they click stop record and scribe will auto generate step-by-step written instructions with screenshots showing what they did. And we've taken a look at this. The average scribe takes, uh, I think, 54 seconds to create. So just really, really easy for anyone to be able to do. And we track this as well. We look at from the moment you land on our website to the moment that you're able to create and share your first scribe is under four minutes. So really just how do we make this as easy and easy as possible for folks who already don't have enough time to be able to just very quickly capture and share how to do something and send it to a client or a colleague or whatever. Um, And so... Our hope is with all of that, we're unlocking a lot more efficiency gains within the day for people. I think one of the things that I love hearing talking to users is like, oh gosh, I used to spend hours creating these, you know, SOPs in, in docs, uh, in Word docs with, um, you know, copy paste screenshots and like bless their hearts, the people who take the time to, to go through and do all of that work. And they're like, now with Scribe, I do that in, you know, 54 seconds. And so like, now I've got a bunch more time where I can do the things I actually enjoy doing. Right. I I think there are very few people who say like documentation is the thing I wake up for every day. They wake up for the doing the actual work, knowing how to do the stuff. And this is just a way for them to, to quickly kind of be able to share that with others. And I think that that's a really big product insight that you shared there about it being four minutes to having the scribe created. Cause that was my experience of basically, you know, to test out before this interview, sign up for the product, understand how it works. Um, and just kind of conceive of what it is that you're attempting to do. And, you know, people take for granted now one click checkout at something like Amazon and the degree to which that reduction of friction allows more transacting to occur, the business to be stronger. And 
it's not the same when you're trying to onboard someone into an enterprise software tool, a B2B software tool, but that same notion of can we get someone from inception to their first win, their first completed task as a ratchet for retaining that user, getting them to refer it, what have you, is really like the essence of these early days of the product in addition to um, fundraising and all the other crazy stuff you're juggling. I love that. If you were to ask, what is our one mantra within Scribe? It's reduce friction. We try to think at every step of the way. Because I think is is especially within software now is the marginal cost of shipping software goes down. You have more and more tools in the world. And I think we've all experienced this when someone sends you a new tool to use. Like, at least I know I have this feeling of, oh gosh, how long is it going to take me to figure out how to actually use this thing? Right. I'm yeah. sure, I'm sure it's great, but, but like, is it worth it? Is it worth the learning curve to get up there? And so we've said, what if there were no learning curve? It's pretty radical, but what if you could just have someone drop into the product and they didn't have to try to learn anything? And so, as I mentioned, we've got users in over a hundred countries. They speak many different languages. We haven't translated our product yet. And we look at their behavior and we say, are they able without speaking English to be able to land on our site, figure out how to use the product and get value in under four minutes. And we've designed to that. So the, the answer is yes, that you're able to kind of wow. get through that. And so we're always, and the same thing with, with the scribe experience, I think um, we think about this a lot vis-a-vis video, as an example, you mentioned doing kind of quick time recordings for a lot of people, there's even some cognitive overhead with that. I know it's easy. You just click a button, but how many, how many processes have people actually documented with videos? Not that many, because before, I don't know about you, but me, before I click record on a video, I'm like, wait, what am I going to say? I got to make sure I have everything set up properly. There's cognitive overhead, that's friction. And so how do you take even that part out of the process and say, no, literally you don't have to do anything else other than what you were already planning to do. And you've got flexibility and you can edit and change later if you want to, but we'll take care of most of it. You don't even really have to do that. So just always trying to take the friction out of every part of the experience is the thing that we focus on most. Right on. Well, uh, we're going to link that in the show notes for people to check it out. Uh, what other digital coordinates do you want us to direct listeners to if they want to learn more, Jennifer? They're welcome to come check out the product directly, www.scribehow.com, scribe, S-C-R-I-B-E, how, H-O-W.com. Um, feel free to, so there's a big shiny button that says try scribe for free. Feel free to, to check it out. Um, we can also share a promo code for listeners who want to uh, try trial the, uh, the, the pro product for free. Awesome. We're going to link all of that in the show notes for this episode. You can find it in the app. We're probably listening to it. Uh, or at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. But before I let you go, Jennifer, I would like to give you the mic one final time to issue your actionable personal challenge for the audience. Going back to my do the thing that you have to apologize for about yourself, take a look at your calendar and drop the things you don't want to do. I know that sounds radical and I know that there are exceptions of things that we have to do every day that we don't want to do, but you should spend most of your day doing things you're actively excited to do. And if that's not the case, just try dropping some of the things that you don't want to. And you'd be surprised to see sometimes they're not as important as you thought they would be. And if you spend more time doing the things that you actually love doing, that's where the beta comes from, right? That's where you can have exponential returns to your time. And so I, for example, don't, I try not to schedule my calendar more than two days in advance. There are exceptions. I'll have clients, customers who say, Hey, I want to schedule next week. I have some recurring meetings on the calendar. There are exceptions, 
But if someone says, Hey, I want to talk, I offer times tomorrow, or I give them my cell phone number and I say, give me a call sometime. Yep. Because if it's not important enough to do in the next 48 hours, like why am I cluttering my calendar with it? I should be leaving larger blocks of my time for me to do the things that I love doing. Right on. So uh, when, when we had our daughter, I was talking to a friend who doesn't have a kid about the difference. And I was like, basically my priority list was like, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And I just got like a new A, B, and C that yeah. kind of pushed everything down. And, you know, by the nature of the, the constraints of time, some stuff's going to get eliminated uh, naturally. Out, maybe that is a forcing function, but just in general, like, is there an example of something that you eliminated that was just like the drag, the worst, the, the whatever that maybe you were like a little unsure of, and then you got rid of it. You're like, oh, it's completely fine. There's a lot of just the day-to-day functioning. I used to join all of my individual teams meetings. I used to um, join a lot of customer meetings. I still do, but that's because I love customer meetings. I love talking to customers but I'm not in the day-to-day where my teams are making individual decisions anymore, right? I sort of say like, here's the overall vision of where we're trying to go as a company. And if you need me, let me know. I'll join, no questions asked. That's actually helped a lot. I've told people like, no questions asked. If you want me in something, I will just be there, but I am default not there anymore. And so I want you to pull me in. And the challenge there is reducing the barrier so people feel comfortable pulling you in when they actually need you or when you can be helpful but I try to never be in any meeting where I am not adding a ton of value because me just being an FYI is not value for anyone. Right. I mean, that's kind of, you know, the, the analog version was the open door policy. Like you can, you know, drop in any time and it's still daunting if you're the CEO, if you're an executive and there's someone who wants to like bend your ear for a second. Um, so you probably just have to, you know, partially it's an internal messaging thing of repeating, Hey, it's okay to invite me. Hey, it's okay to invite me. Hey, I want to be invited for X, Y, or Z if you need me. Yeah. And, and because again, we're remote right now because of Omicron, we, sh- we shut our office. And so I'll just call people during the day. And, and part of that is selfish because now it works with a newborn schedule, right? Where I have unpredictable periods of time throughout the day. And so I'll just call people and check in. And the info that you learn from an informal check-in, I think is way better than from any of these kind of scheduled meetings. Interesting. A lot of good stuff here, Jennifer. This was awesome. Thank you for sharing so much with us on the show today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Aaron. We just went deep with Jennifer Smith. Hope you're not there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with Jennifer. If you enjoyed this and want more behind the scenes insights on company building, I think you'll enjoy our past conversation with Joe Percoco, the co-founder of Titan, a fintech startup that is taking a novel approach to helping retail investors develop a portfolio strategy. He talks all about building fintech and a whole lot more. Check that out and hit subscribe because we have some fantastic interviews coming soon. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.